0: To the millennial politics podcast i'm your host jordan valerie my pronouns are she her hers and today i'm joined by allison hartson national director of wolfpack and democratic candidate for the united states senate in california thanks for coming on
1: Thanks for having me, Jordan.
0: Of course, we're glad to have you. Now, you are challenging incumbent Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. She is running for yet another term, even though polling shows, a lot of Californians want her out. What motivated you to jump into this race? And why do you think you're the best candidate to defeat her?
1: What motivated me specifically is the fact that she is running again. And if we really consider our movement to be able to end political corruption, make sure that we have true representation in our government. Um, we have to make sure that we are holding all establishment candidates accountable, what, no matter what party they are, Democrat, Republican, other. Uh, and Diane Feinstein is the epitome of the political corruption, money in politics, doing favors for the wealthy and putting their interests over our interests by and large. Uh, this is what's in the best interest of California, but it's also a huge strategic move for our movement because we do this with our grassroots campaign and show what's possible. More people, more progressives are going to run for office in the next session and we're going to show people how it's done. That kind of hope and that kind of progress uh, will will do a lot for people to come out even more so in 2020. And we'll start to see the legislation we're all fighting for pass as soon as 2021. And uh, the reason why I feel that I am am the best candidate in this race and why I decided to run in the first place is because of my experience and, and what I can really bring to fighting for ending this kind of corruption. So as you mentioned, I was the national director of a nonprofit organization, and it's a political organization called Wolfpack, whose sole mission is to get an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that will overturn Citizens United and related cases. So let's get big money out of politics. Let's have publicly funded elections replace privately funded elections, meaning that more people from the working class have a chance at running for office and actually winning. And, and so I've been working around the country with states, with red states, blue states, purple states, talking to legislators across the political spectrum, talking to voters, knocking on doors of constituents in in Trumpville, in birdieville in Clintonville, and um, and through this experience, I know what we need to do in order to get the legislation passed that we are all fighting for. And prior to that. I taught public high school for 10 years. I taught English. I also designed an intervention program for students who were at risk of not graduating high school. And so my experience there working in this low-income community really contributes quite a lot to my perspective on how all of these policies are affecting us from every different angle. And we've got to move forward on all of them together and at the same time. So
0: we've seen a lot of crowded Democratic primaries as of late, and California is different in that you have a jungle primary where the top two vote-getters regardless of party will move on to the general, but I think there is still this sense that there are just so many candidates, it's overwhelming, Democratic candidates especially challenging Feinstein from the left. What do you think differentiates you in terms of policy from the other candidates? Why, when voters hear about your platform, should they vote for you instead of the other challengers from the left?
1: The, the biggest thing, and, and there are a few of us who have very similar policies, if not entirely similar policies on a lot of things. The biggest thing that differentiates me on policy is that I clearly really understand just how important getting money out of politics is and, and really how it's a systemic issue. And it's, it's not just because of my experience, my understanding of this led me to have the experience I did, which was to give up my career as a teacher and to do this full-time instead. And and what I mean by that is it's not just another policy. Medicare for all is incredibly important. Getting a federal minimum wage tied to inflation is critical. Getting college for all is necessary. Uh, Replacing our war economy with a green economy is our obligation to do so. But the, as far as getting an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that will make it so that corporations aren't people and money isn't speech, understanding how that is really the foundation of these policies. And it cannot be something that we are willing to compromise on and how we're going to fight for that, and how we're going to help get that done. Uh, I am the only one who really clearly fully understands that.
0: Could you give us kind of a, a quick summary of Dianne Feinstein's record.
1: She's really stuck in the way that she has been voting and and thinking since she started. So for those who aren't aware, she, uh, she's she been in politics now. She's been a representative at, at some level for half a century. So for 50 years, she's either been uh, like the mayor of San Francisco, she was a US senator and still is of California for the last 25, 26 years. And, um, and in the course of that time, she has some of her, her biggest votes have been, she voted for the Iraq war, which as we know was an illegal war. It broke the Middle East, it led to ISIS and the huge complicated problem we have right now in the Middle East that is costing us trillions of dollars and is costing the lives of tens of thousands of innocent people. And then what that does to us domestically at home as well, uh, with all of these other policies that we need to get passed, but we are constantly told we don't have the money for. Uh, she also voted for the Bush tax cuts, which has led to, you know, this, this kind of reverse Robin Hood where you're allowing corporations and the wealthy elite to essentially take money from the poor. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where our taxes are raised in a number of ways and their taxes are lowered, she voted to end Glass-Steagall, which uh, essentially created this wall, this separation between between banks, and and helped to to break up big banks. Uh, it, it doesn't go as far as it needs to, but it was a really really important measure to have this kind of separation of of investment banks and commercial banks. And when overturning Glass-Steagall, that she voted for allowed them to bridge together in allows these big banks to become even bigger. And it is a huge part of what led to this great recession that uh, of, of 2008. She uh, has been a huge supporter of the death penalty. She has been a staunch supporter of locking people up in prison for uh, using marijuana. And uh, she, in fact, in here in California, we have now legalized marijuana. But as recently as 2010, she led the charge on against that legalization. She She came out strong against legalizing it again in 2014. One vote after another, she's been on the side of the wealthy elite and corporations that have something to gain in terms of profit over the best interest of the people.
2: Hey everybody, this is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With c you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics and know that Sino does not charge any fees there are no minimums and sign up take less than 5 minutes check them out
0: I think something really interesting I was reading about you earlier is that you're not just pro-marijuana legalization. You support all drug decriminalization. Could you tell us why you think that's a good idea?
1: Decriminalizing drugs allows us to offer more rehabilitative measures to help people who use drugs, who abuse drugs, who um, need and really deserve the kind of support that they are lacking, and often using drugs to um, make Maybe supplement uh, other areas of their life where where they need some kind of help. But once you start you start using drugs and now you're you know it, partaking in a quote unquote criminal activity. It's hard to get that help that you really need. Uh, so it would do a, it would go a really long way to be, to putting rehabilitation over retribution which is just part of our culture from the very beginning and founding of, of, of the this country has been um, has, has really been retribution has has been punishment and it doesn't work and we are so advanced now with our research in psychology and sociology and the humanities that we know how to offer people the kind of support and care uh, that that people need in order to um, to either avoid abusing drugs or to be able to help get them off of drugs. That's one aspect. Um, the other aspect too is is we just know that that the war on drugs, starting largely under Nixon, is really an extension of slavery. It's an extension of systemic racism. It targets our communities of color. We have people who you know white people who use drugs just as much, uh, if not more so in some cases, and they are not punished to the degrees that people of color are. And so what it does is it leads to this, this cycle of poverty and this cycle of racism and this, this cycle of abuse that happens in these communities and their families, uh, not allowing people to really be able to work Uh, hard to pull themselves out of their impoverished situation. So this would go a long way to ending that kind of systemic racism. Um, And and the, there are the thing is too. This is not theoretical. There are other countries that do this and have proven that it really it really does work. It'll also save us a lot of money. The money that we are are dumping in into this 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 criminal justice system or injustice, I should say, this criminal injustice system, uh, we could be putting instead into the all of these other programs that that we are are really working hard towards. And so um, there's it, it would help to destabilize stigmatize the uh, drug use, not even drug abuse, but like drug use itself, uh, people who who are able to recreationally use drugs and still be able to work and be productive members of the community I mean the the list goes on that we are we are losing financially and we are losing culturally by by waging continuing to wage this war on drugs our streets it seems counterintuitive but our streets will be so much safer if we can decriminalize and when we decriminalize all drugs but there's a lot of people of course that have a lot to learn about how this works so I'm glad that you ask about it it's it's a conversation we really need to be having much more so in the the mainstream sphere
0: Something I really appreciate that you're hitting at is how crime in the United States has always been this racialized construct. You know, the government is able to label a certain thing as a crime and then incarcerate and punish people of color for it. What is your mindset in approaching crime?
1: Yeah, so (laughs) this has always been a really fascinating study for me in terms of, um, just, just studying and understanding, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see, crime. The question always comes back to who, who makes the laws? and who then is used to hold those laws and people accountable to those laws. So one of the things that always like makes me either laugh or shake my head or wanna bang my head against a wall is when people say, well, it's the law. Well, yeah, what law, who made it? I mean, some of the laws that we have that that are still on the books just because they're so silly, nobody's even taken the time to overturn them, but just, just go back you know, 100 plus years are absurd. Like it used to be legal that a man here in the United States was legally allowed to kill his wife if she was caught uh, cheating on him. Of course, women weren't allowed to do that. I mean, some of the stuff in our history is, is pretty shocking to read about that are, that are still on the books. And so uh, when we look at like the fact that who's writing our laws now and has been for, since, since the dawn of history for our country, rich white people. And every single time one of our, I guess, minority communities has started to rise in power, whether it's it's African Americans or Latin Americans or women or Asian Americans, then the rich white people write laws to continue to hold power over them. And so what we have to look at and, and work really hard for us, those of us in these minority communities to get into office and be the ones to write these laws, be the ones to take a look at these laws and say, what is working for us, we the people, and what is working against us? And so when it comes to criminal behavior, Really, who's defining what is criminal? So when you're looking at like white collar crime that is being committed in, in very much the same ways that it's being done by the, the working classes, but they're not being held accountable and being able to get away with that, they're essentially like mob, bus, b- mob bosses as well. You have people in the pharmaceutical industry who are pushing drugs. They are making drugs and pushing drugs into our communities, leading and contributing to drug abuse and drug overdoses. Look at our opioid epidemic happening right now. How is that any different from people on the streets who are making and pushing heroin or cocaine or meth? It It is a conversation that we have to have and, and actually address and hold everybody accountable to the same degrees, but we can only do so when we are the ones in office. And this has been the biggest thing that I've noticed and, and why I'm running for office right now And we all need to be doing so at some level or backing those who and put everything we can into those who are because because we've been on the outside screaming this at our government for decades. And yet the problems have only gotten worse because they hold the power. And if we're gonna change that, we have to come at them from every angle. And now we have to continue to come at them from the streets. We have to continue to come at them from our independent media. But now we have to get, get in there on the inside and run for office and make sure we put people in office who are running on these platforms and are who, tru, who truly are progressive and have that experience so that we can go in there and take care of this legislatively because it really, all of these problems we're facing really do come down to policy.
0: So, speaking of draconian legal practices, ICE has come under a lot of scrutiny as of late. But something that I believe is that ICE should never exist in the first place legal or illegal its fundamental purpose is to round up and deport people because of their documentation status i believe that you are the only major senate candidate in the country right now who supports abolishing ice could you tell us about this
1: yeah it's it's a le- it's yet another legalized form of of racism and terror and it makes me sick to my stomach You've got the federal government coming into our communities, in our schools, in our local places of business, and waiting for people who are being reported as uh, undocumented, and and what the stories that we hear about them being taken and being held, and and how I just can't even. Uh, it makes me so sick to my stomach. Like I can't even imagine the the te- The sheer terror that these human beings are feeling when they are taken in, they're not able to reach out to their family. They're not able to get the legal representation that they deserve. There are stories of people who have proof that they are citizens, but they can't even get that proof and the the kind of abuse and bullying that they experience from, uh, from these these ice agents and then they're in there for however many days until they're finally released and then they're like oops sorry meanwhile now they haven't been going to work they haven't been getting a paycheck their family is is you know worried sick about them and this and yes you're right this is just another draconian practice although ice itself is relatively new historically and basically what happened was our immigration center wasn't working efficiently And so a few years ago, the government broke it up into different into different segments and and so that you could have ICE itself uh, really be able to operate more efficiently in being able to to identify the undocumented citizens which they're all still not doing a good job at and then because they're also bringing in people who are are documented and then and then being able to detain them and and deport them as well so um so that's somewhat somewhat recent but what's draconian is the perspective of of immigrants and and our undocumented residents. And so I support abolishing ICE completely. And then what we need to do as a country is really step back and ask ourselves with every issue that we're, that we're talking about, really, what is the root cause? Because it's only once you take the time, it does take time. Once you take the time to really identify the root cause of any issue then you go after that root cause in order to solve it. Otherwise, if you don't identify that, then all we keep doing as a very reactionary society is simply responding or reacting to the symptom. For example, Trump is a symptom of the problem in this country. Uh, the, the KKK is a symptom of what is going on and what's wrong with this country, systemic racism, uh, white supremacy, the, the Republican Party and what's coming out with, with the, the systemic racism and white supremacy there. And so, so too is it, people coming here undocumented and the refugees who come here as well. And so some of the things we can look at is like our international trade policies, where our international policies like NAFTA and the TPP, which is on hold, and I I hope forever, is really ends up doing what our own policies here on our shores do, which is to put profit over people, driving countries into poverty, and that ends up driving more crime. And so you have people fleeing here as either refugees or quote unquote illegal immigrants, although I don't believe any human being is illegal. But this is the rhetoric they use, the talking points, of course. So they come over here fleeing because of the crime and the poverty that is in some part and in lo- some and in some countries in a large part because of what we contribute. And then they come here and we go, yeah, you shouldn't be here. We're going to ship you back. And the way that we treat them is, 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 is in, completely inhumane, but also... You have the whole other aspect of this, which is the racist rhetoric around immigration, which we know is is just it's just that and it's completely inaccurate the 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 way that that undocumented people actually contribute to our economy and contribute to our culture is beautiful i just i am so proud of living in a very diverse community and having such a diverse state and i believe that having that is what leads to a more progressive and open-minded community and culture and so i personally welcome that But uh, we have got to take responsibility for our contribution to these situations. And to take responsibility for that means we need to give full amnesty to all of our undocumented citizens. We created these situations to a large degree, and so we have to take responsibility and move forward. While we create, um, provide for full amnesty, which would also address DACA, then we also need to create a clear path to citizenship for future immigrants as well. Because another way that we contribute to having undocumented citizens and, and these, these people living in the shadows and dealing with the kind of, of abuses and downright um, incredibly abusive situations that a lot of, of women in particular are experiencing in these, these uh, kind of you know, underground economy jobs, We welcome people here in this way and we contribute to this by making the process of becoming documented incredibly convoluted. It's also incredibly expensive. The average cost these days to become documented is $10,000. You have, who can afford that? You have people waiting on the list for 10 to 20 years, not just because of like That's the requirement because literally paperwork gets lost and immigration officers report on this constantly. They talk about this. So again, that leads back to we have to take responsibility for this and move forward with how we're going to actually address the those root causes and also address our our racist culture by and large to becoming the kind of compassionate, loving, peaceful culture that I really do believe all of us are striving for.
0: So I think that leads me to the last question I want to ask you. you. You mentioned before Dianne Feinstein's vote for the Iraq war. Could you tell us what an anti-imperialist democratic party looks like and how you would lead it as a United States Senator.
1: Yes, so and as far as being an imperialist nation, I mean, this is what we were founded on. This country was founded by coming here and taking it from the people who were already here, the native people, uh, native Americans now, we, we refer to to these communities, you know, moved west and we conquered their land And we did this coming from an imperialist mindset from Europe that was colonizing and imperializing all over the world. And so, you know, understanding psychology and and sociological factors, w- w- the way a culture starts is the way a culture continues and the way a culture will also finish and end if we don't stop. Like we we are going to expand <laughs> ourselves so much that that we're going to break like every other country has in, in the past. And so we see ourselves continuing with this kind of, of, of mentality when we go into countries like in the Middle East, and um, and, and and tell them. And dictate to them how to be more democratic. Isn't that ironic for, <laughs> for us, right? Dictate to them how to be more democratic, um, and and what this does, of course, economically, how this is breaking us, um, but also how this breaks these. It breaks these cultures and communities as well, in in terms of like expanding war and multiplying it. And I could go on and on about the psychology of how all of that works too. But the real bottom line is that. If if we and the the reason why I'll say this too the reason why the people of America, by and large, get behind these wars is because the government sells it as like a project of peace, because that's what people really want. And they know that. And so we have to help people understand that if you are really serious about actually having peace, then we have to learn how to live peacefully amongst people who have different cultures and different ideas and ways of living their life. And so some of the ways that we can do this, and this doesn't mean that we d- that we just like drop all of our defenses and drop our military and just expect everybody to live peacefully amongst each other. I mean, we do need to be very careful and aware of the fact that yes, we've put ourselves in a situation where there are people in the world who who could do harm to other countries if not ours and so we need a we do need a military to that extent but we can we can really be brokers of peace more than anything else and to do this we we need to be using diplomacy always every single thing we do should be diplomacy before actual military intervention and war we should never fund a country that is committing humanitarian abuses we should not be funding israel we should not be funding saudi arabia they should not be funding us there's this love fest going on be, be, between these countries and that's going to um, be be dealt with when we get money out of politics as well we you know, really need to um, be working more and better with the United Nations. When we sign on to a deal like the Iran deal, we need to keep our promises. We need to keep our deals. We need to build up our trust with the international community. This puts us in some grave dangers to be entered into even more war, of which, you know, I'm not surprised. To be honest, if some people actually want it because there's a profit to be had there, not just with money, but with power as well. And, and the more we can continue, again, to have these conversations, run candidates who really truly believe this and get them into office, we will actually start to be able to change this.
0: So if folks are interested in learning more about you or getting involved in your campaign, where can they find you online?
1: Go to my website or social media. My website is allisonhartson.com A-L-I-S-O-N, H-A-R-T-S-O-N. And my social media handle is the same everywhere. It's Allison for C a four is spelled out F O R. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. You can also just Google me and probably find it.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank
1: you, Jordan, for everything you do. Yeah, of course.
0: So to our listeners, Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.